0: God bless you. What a great crowd today. Welcome to our second service. Children are dismissed to children's worship, and uh, we appreciate all the service that takes place there with that. We had a great big group for the first service, and it looks like we've got a good one for this one as well. Let me invite your attention to Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1, and the thing I want to begin with this morning is I want to begin with the story of Joseph and the story of Moses, It'll be very important in setting up Exodus chapter 1, 2, and chapter 3. And the thing I want to assure you of is this. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in now, God was prepared long before it arrived. God was there, and he is in the midst of orchestrating great good for you and great glory to his Son. That's how God does things. In Exodus chapter 1, We find, for example, that God replaced Joseph with Moses. If you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, let me remind you. It begins in Genesis chapter 37 where God gave Joseph a vision of his role in his family and even in the nation of Israel. And that is, as the youngest son at the time, he would be exalted above his brothers and even his parents and that he would be their savior and rescuer from some difficult circumstances. Well, they didn't settle well with his brothers. And so they sold him into slavery to some Ishmaelite traders who took him to Egypt. They put him in a pit, and they sold him to Ishmaelite traders who sold him to Potiphar as a slave. Well, he served well there until he was falsely accused of something, and then he found himself in prison. And while in prison, he served very well there. God's hand was on him. And he served there in the prison until he became of service to Pharaoh to interpret a dream, to give him insight from Almighty God about some things that were on Pharaoh's heart and mind. Well, God took him from the pit in prison and raised him to the pinnacle of Egyptian power. And he became number two in charge. He became the exo-officer, the executive officer, to implement Pharaoh's will all over Egypt. And in his time there, he led Egypt through seven years of plenty to save and uh, to um, put into reserve some foodstuffs because that would be followed by seven years of famine. Well, that was powerful and awesome. So Joseph went from the pit to the prison to the pinnacle to where? He could protect and prosper Israel. In the midst of that famine, Israel comes from the Promised Land into Egypt where Joseph reunites with his family and ends up saving them and the entire nation of Egypt because of how God directed him in that government post. It's a remarkable story beginning in Genesis 37. That was such a powerful and helpful story thing that Joseph did for Israel, that his legacy lived uh, through Israel for four centuries. For four centuries, the Hebrews, Joseph's family, enjoyed the protection of his legacy and the prosperity of his legacy, and they multiplied and multiplied greatly. Read with me in Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Where it says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel, and look at how this is repeated in four different ways. The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. And so, Israel, in the wake of Joseph's legacy, enjoyed protection and prosperity. Their numbers increased from these 70 to eventually 2 million. Now, that's not a big stretch of the imagination. In less than 200 years, the United States has gone from a few dozen to 330 million. So it's not terribly remarkable that they would go from 70 to 2 million after four centuries. And that's what happened with Israel. But something happened. Eventually, Joseph's legacy had lived its day, and some, uh, the uh, rulership of Egypt forgot Joseph's legacy. So look with me in verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he got intimidated. He got threatened by the great population of Israel, and he feared that if someone invaded Egypt, Israel would switch sides, and Israel would fight For the invaders against Egypt. Well, they got paranoid. Now, this, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the very first instances in the entire Bible of the pernicious and the persistent anti-Semitism that the human race has dealt with since the days of Exodus chapter 1. Satan has a vested interest in destroying Israel. And he's been trying to do so for centuries. Because if he can do that, he can abolish the promise of God and keep Genesis 3.15 and other promises from being fulfilled. And this is just one manifestation of it. And so, verse number 13, it says, So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with bondage, in mortar, in brick, and all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So they enslaved them, and they charged them with building some supply cities and buildings that were necessary for a supply city. That is the story of Joseph. His legacy lived on in protection and prosperity for 400 years, but eventually a new king arose who knew not Joseph, and he began to persecute Israel as a result. At this point, Joseph is no use to Israel. Joseph and his legacy have passed off the scene and now Israel is in trouble and then we go to the story of Moses. I want you to look at Moses' entrance into the world. Moses' entrance into the world really begins with the context of verse 15 of chapter 1. Pharaoh ordered the destruction and death of all the baby boys. Now Herod would follow up on that several centuries later when Jesus was born. Well, this is what this Pharaoh does in Egypt, he orders the death of all the Hebrew boys. Now, the midwives who helped deliver Hebrew children did not cooperate, and God honored them uh, because they feared the Lord and they uh, had more respect for Pharaoh than they did, or excuse me, more respect for God than they did Pharaoh. It's into that context in which Moses is born. And chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, going down to verse number 10, says that Moses, the third child in his family, Uh, the son of Amram and Jacobed, was born and they did all they could to keep him hidden for three months. Now, can you imagine the difficulty of keeping a baby quiet for three months? As uh, Egyptian military are up and down every alley, every street, coming through every home, maybe doing house-to-house inspections as well, looking for Hebrew baby boys to kill and to execute. Well, Jochebed was like the Hebrew midwives. She trusted and feared God more than she did Pharaoh and his army. And after three months, she couldn't keep him hidden any longer. She knew that there was a place on the river nearby where Pharaoh's daughter, who had considerable power, would uh, come and play in the water and bathe with her entourage there. And so on a day, right before Pharaoh's daughter arrived on that river, she put together and wove together a basket of reeds and covered it with pitch, uh, covered it with asphalt, and sealed it and placed baby Moses into that basket and then didn't set Moses in the river but set him amongst the reeds on top of water so it was, the basket was um, waterproof and water resistant and set him in the midst of those reeds at just the right time and then Pharaoh's daughter shows up. And then Moses cries. And then her maternal instincts kick in. And then a servant retrieves Moses and the basket and brings him to her. And then her heart melts with this baby. And then Moses' oldest sister, the oldest child in the family, Miriam, shows up. And then she offers to find a Hebrew nurse. And then she goes and gets her mama to come nurse Moses and to care for him in his infancy, and then Pharaoh's daughter agrees to pay her for it. Remarkable, is it not? If Ephesians chapter 2 is the grace chapter of the Bible, Exodus chapter 2 is the providence Bible. Uh, chapter of the Bible. God is orchestrating circumstances in order to keep Moses alive, and then she brings Moses into Pharaoh's household, and it is Moses Pharaoh brings into his household, educates him, raises him up, and this would be the one that would undo Pharaoh's reign in the land over Israel. Only God could ever think of doing something like that with a baby. A baby. And that's what he does here in the text. That is Moses' entrance into the world. But I want you to notice his ejection from the land. Moses gets ahead of God in chapter 2, verse 11. And his mother has raised him has taught him the great stories of creation, fall, flood, and Babel, has taught him of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and communicates this to him. So even in Pharaoh's palace, he identifies with the Hebrew people. And he goes out one day and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating on a Hebrew. Moses looks to the left, looks to the right, and kills the Egyptian taskmaster in defense of the the, uh, Hebrew slave. Well, they find out about it. And in chapter 2, verse number 15, it says Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian and sat down near a well. So Moses was ejected from the land. And for 40 years, he dwells in the land of Midian, raising sheep. He marries Zipporah, uh, he prospers there. And then one day, something remarkable happens after all these years. Perhaps he's thought and God has forgotten about him, like maybe you think God's forgotten about you. But instead, Moses is there tending sheep. And in Exodus chapter 3, God shows up in a burning bush. He speaks to Moses, and he calls Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. Look at chapter 3, verse number 7. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. We've seen his entrance, his ejection. Now here's his elevation. God elevates him to the liberator of Israel, to being the lawgiver of Israel, and then becoming the new legacy of Israel is what's happened. So let me summarize here. Israel is vulnerable. Israel is vulnerable to the wiles and the impulses of Pharaoh the king. They are slaves. Joseph is no longer a help to them. Joseph and his legacy are gone off the scene, and God sends Moses. Now, some of you are in a similar situation today. Your Joseph is gone. Joseph can no longer help you. It it, it may be a friendship. It may be a relationship, it may be a job, it may be a major, it may be one of many different things, but what was helping you one day is gone off the scene, you can no longer live off of that, and now you are burdened and close to misery if not living in it now, much like Israel. Joseph is gone, but listen, when your Joseph is gone, lift your eyes, because God is sending a Moses. When Joseph can no longer help you, Moses is on the way. I remember when Sherry, Michelle, and I left Fort Worth after I graduated from seminary. We went to East Tennessee where uh, she was going to serve her fourth summer in centrifuge, and I was going to serve my third summer in centrifuge. Now, that was a big move, and I know you're probably not familiar about how Baptist ministers operate with their vocation and employment, but we really cannot put our name forward, apply for positions, or um, even send our resume as in the secular world. That's perfectly fine in the secular world, but it comes across as presumptuous and arrogant. So we have to wait we got to wait on the committee. we got to wait on the contact to come after us is how we do this in Baptist ministry. Well, I had done centrifuge in East Texas and in New Mexico through the years and uh, was a camp pastor there, got wide exposure to uh, a couple thousand youth groups. And the following fall and spring of uh, the semesters when I was in seminary, I got a lot of invitations to speak and to preach. Um, around Texas and, uh, um, and Arkansas Louisiana and some in Oklahoma so uh, I, I didn't speak as much as maybe some others did but I was on the circuit and constantly preaching and as a single seminary student I was making a pretty good living I, I could be busy at least two weekends out of the year and then I set went, went on staff at a church and kept that up and busy and I got so many invitations I went to our personnel committee and said look I've got to make a choice. I want to stay here at the church. Would you limit the number of times I can be out in a quarter? And that'll be a great big help to me. But the invitations kept coming, and I had a lot of contacts. Again, I can't put myself forward. They've got to come after me and invite me. So I, I can't engage in any self-promotion at all. Well, folks, when I left Texas and went to East Tennessee, all my contacts dried up. That Mississippi River in the nation is a huge cultural divide between the West and the East, and folks on both sides of the river don't know each other. So I go from being rather busy on the west side of that river to nothing on the east side of the river. And I start this centrifuge camp in the summer of '91 with Sherry and Michelle, and uh, we're married by this time. And I start centrifuge camps. God blesses the invitation is fruitful. There's some awesome things happening in the camp, but unlike previous summers, no invitations are coming in. What you have to understand is, is that we left Texas and went to East Tennessee, spent a few days with their family, and one family member said, so um, when the summer's over, what are you all going to do? And Sherry Michelle replied, she said, you know, I think uh, what we're praying for is that God will open the door to a church where David can pastor and we can go and serve there. And so they summed up what she said, her answer, and said, so essentially, at the end of the summer, you are unemployed riffraff. That stuck on my heart. Now, this is the same family member that when she introduced me to this family member after I asked uh, 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 for her engagement, she, uh, if I could be married to her, uh, asked her parents. This same family member said, um, uh, she asked, well, what would you think about him? And this family member said, well, at least he's not a bartender. I'm thinking, how about you sit up and encourage me a little bit, bud? Look, if you marry somebody from Tennessee, that's what you get, all right? That's what you get. Hey, and it's a great thing. It's a great thing, baby. Don't misunderstand me. (laughs) But I have to tell you, that got onto my heart and that got onto my mind. And I kept thinking, unemployed riffraff. Unemployed. Oh, and student loans came due. And week is past. We've only got 10 weeks. And we're at the fourth or fifth week, and there are no invitations for the fall. There are no invitations for the spring, and a pulpit committee has not uh, contacted me. My friends have sent out my resume in other places. They're making contacts for me at their own initiative, not mine, and that's what's taking place. And no one is calling. And this got to me one afternoon, and I walked back into this dank, musty dorm room that was so full of humidity, we had to have a humidifier. half the size of this platform and I I got discouraged and I really got upset and I looked at her and I said (coughs) I didn't say that but (laughs) I said if this is how God treats his employees I don't think I want anything to do with this I would never treat anybody this way this is awful this is terrible Who treats their employees this way? I've abandoned myself. I've left my home. I've left my home state. I've come here by faith. And there is nothing materializing. And she said, this is the first time I've ever seen you like this. You go pray about it. And I did. And I scooped myself up from that moment. I was still pretty discouraged. Went into worship that night. Things broke loose during the invitation. It was a powerful service, but I'm still pretty down. And I get up the next morning. I'm walking across the recreation field. And someone that she had met earlier in the week, who was connected to someone she had met earlier or a year before in the same location, came and found me. He had brought a youth group up from Kingstree, South Carolina. And he was on the pastor search committee as the vice chairman. And he came to me and said, David, we we think we may want to talk with you about coming to First Baptist King Street. Do you have a resume? I reached in my backpack and said, i got one right here. (laughs) See, I wasn't going to put it out, but I was ready in case some joker asked me, okay? But uh, he took it, and one thing led to another. We ended up serving there. God did a powerful, awesome work in that church. We were there for three years. But, folks, Joseph, I was in a position where my Joseph of my home state And all my friends in the Southwest could no longer help me. And at that moment, Moses was on the way. Actually, his name was Grover Mixon, but I don't care. Moses was on the way. Hey, you know, Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, was similar to that. She said, if God had answered all of my prayers, I would have married the wrong man three times. But she waited and she didn't take a step forward with these other three guys and eventually became the wife and really the foundation and rock for the great ministry of Billy Graham because she knew what to do as she was waiting on her Moses. Well, you may be asking the question, uh, you know, Dave, what do I do till Moses shows up? I, I, I don't, you know, Joseph can't help me anymore. My Joseph is gone. What can I do until Moses appears? There are a few things in the text I want to draw your attention to. And the first is, is the carry on. In chapter one, the Israelites continued to do their work and the Hebrew midwives stood and protected life. They believed that babies were human life and they protected them. They did what they knew God wanted them to do. Listen, as you're waiting on your Moses appear, here's what you do. Keep doing the last thing God told you to do. Keep faithful to the last thing God told you to do. What that means is you give your best to your walk with Him. You give your best to His service in your life. You give your best to your marriage, your family. You give your best to Christ's mission in this world. Continue to do what God told you last to do. What was it that God laid on your heart or commanded from his word that was the last thing God told you to do? Make sure you do it. Do it with all your might. Do it with all your zeal. And because, simply this, God comes through for a faithful people. So the first thing is to carry on. But the second thing is cry out. Cry out. That's what they do here in the text. Chapter 2, verses 23 in 24 remind me of something F.B. Meyer said. F.B. Meyer said that tears, tears have voices. Tears have voices and God interprets them. Tears have voices and God interprets them. Your tears have voices and so did the Israelites in chapter 2 beginning in verse 23. Look here. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. God is listening to your cry in the midst of your misery. Now, let me say to you, whenever you come upon an experience of misery, your heart is breaking and you can barely stand it. Let me tell you, God is signaling at least two things, I believe, to you. One, He's signaling, number one, that He intends to show you great mercy when you call upon Him. So the appearance of misery in your life is something of an inferred promise that God is giving you that if you will cry out to Him, it's His intention, His plan. His purpose to show you mercy. Hey, did you know? By the way, Lord have mercy is the most often requested prayer request in the entire Bible. At least 38 times it shows up in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It especially shows up in Psalms and in the four Gospels about the story and teaching and life and crucifixion of Jesus. Lord have mercy. What that means is, is that God sees someone who's in need. They're helpless. They are without strength. They cry out to him, and God comes through with abundant help in their time of need. God intends great mercy every time you meet misery. So misery is, listen, misery is not your end. Misery is your beginning. You've got to understand. God will come through. And the presence, in the existence, and the arrival of misery in your life is a signal God intends to show you great mercy. But it signals something else as well. And it signals this, that God arrived long before your misery arrived. Look what it says in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. He says at the end of verse 7, I know their sorrows so I have come down. I know their sorrows, so I have come down. Do you notice the tenses here? I currently know their sorrows, so in the past I came down. Before sorrow and misery ever arrived, before the slave circumstance ever arrived, I showed up. I came to them before the slavery did. Before the misery ever arrived, I came and I appeared. Listen to me. Misery misery never acts so low. And misery is the never first thing to arrive on the scene in your life. God comes before it every time. And God accompanies it every time. Long before misery ever shows up in your life then, God is present with a plan and a purpose. And what he's doing Is that in your misery, he's drawing attention to you because his intention is to step in and to prove himself faithful and to prove himself abundantly gracious. And as people are watching you, they end up seeing the hand of God in your life and praise and trust are given to Jesus Christ. You know, I wish people would pay attention for other reasons. I wish they'd just read the Bible and trust, but that's not how they do it. Whenever they see that you are walking through a valley of the shadow of darkness or death, when they see misery appear in your life, God then intends great mercy, and God shows up before your misery ever does. So cry out to him. Your cries to God activate the mercy of God. So carry on, cry out. But the third thing is this, catch up, catch up. Now, back in chapter two, verse 15, Moses fled from Egypt and fled from Pharaoh. In chapter three, verses seven through 10, we find that God has moved beyond Moses' sin and failure. Moses, back in chapter two, killed an Egyptian in defense of a Hebrew and was chased out of the land. And yet God comes in chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, and calls Moses to deliver Israel. And do you know, as we read chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, there wasn't a single mention of Moses' sin or failure. God never brought it up. Do you know why? God had already moved past it. Now, whether or not Moses did, I don't know, but I think the burning bush probably took care of that. But God has moved past it. God has moved beyond that. And look in verse number 10, what he calls Moses to do. Look at the high, exalted position of Moses. He says, I've seen their oppression, so come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh. In other words, they're oppressed. I've come down, so I'm sending you. And that's how God does it every time. When God wants to do something great in someone else's life, He does it through another person, and Moses is the man. And Moses can be the man because God has moved past Moses' failure and his sin, and God's willing to do that for you as well. Did you know that? Now think about what prompted Moses' faith in Almighty God. Think about the limited information that Moses had with which to determine who God is and to build his trust and faith in him. What did Moses know about Almighty God? Well, he knew essentially the content of the book of Genesis. Creation, fall, flood, flop, or Babel, and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's the extent of his knowledge, and that was enough to move Moses to trust God. Now think of the advantage then that you have on Moses. You know creation, fall, flood, flop, or Babel. You know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then you know what happens afterwards. You know the conquest of Joshua. You know the rise of Samuel. You know some of the stories about Samson. And then you know about the kingdom era under Saul, David, and Solomon. You know about the divided kingdom and the uh, illustrious ministry and prophet ministry of Elijah and Elisha. You know some of the things that the prophets said. And that's just the Old Testament. We haven't gotten to the birth of Jesus Christ and his sinless life, his death on the cross for our sins, and his resurrection. And and then what took place in the church afterwards. In other words, Moses trusted God with just knowledge of one book of the Bible. You can approach God today with the knowledge of 66 books of the Bible. You have got, your faith has got, remarkable advantages over Moses because you know so much more, especially the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which now moves your heart and prompts your heart to turn to this God and to trust Him. If Moses could trust God, so can we. So catch up. In other words, God has moved past your failure. He's gone beyond it, and He wants you to catch up with Him in grace by faith. Hey, listen, it's okay if if you repent and place faith in Christ. It's okay to leave all that behind. To forget about it, no longer swim in it, and move forward with God. And you know, God knows what He's getting into when He gets you. It's not like He doesn't know. I mean, He knows everything. He knows it all. And He wants you anyway. Every once in a while, I'll do a Google search, search, maybe every seven, eight years, on Steve Perry. Are you familiar with Steve Perry? Lead singer for Journey back in the 80s and early 90s and off and on again a few times over the last couple decades. Uh, the reason I'm curious about Steve Perry is that when I was in high school, uh, Steve Perry was kind of um, a big thing of, uh, around the world, but to us as well. And uh, Because he graduated from the same high school from which I graduated from and our class did, but 17 years before. And so we thought it was kind of cool that he went to our high school and graduated from there. So once in a while, I'll look up Steve Perry's giving interviews uh, ever so often, and he um, uh, for a while really stepped out of the music industry I read in one interview and got interested in filmmaking, especially after his mother died. Um, and really, I, uh, he indicates that that prompted him to leave the music industry. He was so broken over his mother's death, he just couldn't write anymore and didn't want to sing anymore. But he got interested in filmmaking, and he attached himself to a West Coast filmmaker, and she happened to be doing a documentary on women who were surviving and thriving after breast cancer. And so he was in a studio one day watching her film, trying to learn the trade from her, in hopes that maybe he might do it one day, when his eye, uh, uh, a young lady there caught his eye. Her name was Kelly Nash, and she happened to be one of the survivors, And he began asking this filmmaker about Kelly. And uh, she bragged on Kelly, but she said, Steve, you need to know her breast cancer has returned and it's stage four. And it's rather pessimistic whether she's going to make it or not. You know what Steve Perry did? He started dating her. Knowing she had stage four breast cancer. And he walked with her through that entire experience For 18 months until she died. And despite the heartache and the grief of his mother's death and how badly it set him back, he jumped into the middle of Kelly Nash's life and walked with her until her dying day. He knew what he was getting into, he knew what he was getting, and he jumped in the middle of it anyway. And, ladies and gentlemen, I've got to say, that's nothing. God knows what He's getting into with hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of people. And today, He's willing to jump in the middle of it all anyway. And that's the God who's calling you to trust Him and trust His Son. Would you do that today? Would you stop believing your failure is final? Would you stop believing there's no hope for the future? Would you stop believing it's okay to live without Jesus and do your own thing. The Bible calls that repentance. Unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. And then would you turn to him and trust him and embrace his son and invite him into your life? John 1, 12 says, to as many as received him, gave he the right to be the children of God, even to those that believe on his name. Would you invite him into your life? He wants to come. The cross and resurrection prove it. Stand with me, please, and let me pray for you. Thank you, Father, for a great day. Thank you for magnifying Jesus, and thank you for your eagerness to jump in the middle of our lives, no matter what misery we are.